This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we work toward the closing of the book of signs in the Gospel of John as Jesus states that his hour has come. Yeah, we're going to pick up with the story of the triumphal entry. We did that back in... Do you want to link that episode for our listeners, Brent? We covered that more in depth in session three. I think the episode is called Statement of Triumph. And uh, we could link that if you want a more a deeper examination of what's happening contextually in the triumphal entry. What do you what have you found there? What episode are we talking about? Episode 124. 124. So we're not going to redo all that. We're going to try to focus on what's particular in the Gospel of John and... We'll probably do a whole bunch of repeating of ideas, but we're not going to do the same lesson over again. So there we go. We can uh, we can dive in. I'm, I think I'm going to throw a passage I don't even have in your notes at you, Brent, so we'll be ready for that. Perfect. Love, love reading the Bible. So throw it all at me. <laughs> okay. Uh, starting off, it says the next day. And remember uh, earlier in the chapter, it says that we were six days before the Passover. So this would be five days before the Passover. Uh, it says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. All right. So they see him coming and they grab palm branches, which is a weird thing to do. It has no Passover significance. That's the wrong festival. When do we grab palm branches? Brent? Uh, supposed to be for Sukkot. Sukkot. And yet the palm branch was that image I think we talked about in session three. It was the symbolic image of the zealot party. In fact, at one point in Roman history, it became, it was a crucifiable offense to wave a palm branch. It was the sign of the revolution. It would have been seen as very zealot driven to go grab palm. And, and they get that because of some of the passages we're going to look at today. But they, you can look at Psalm 118. That's a passage I didn't give you. But if you'll go to Psalm 118, Brent, um, let's read uh, what, what they're quoting. Because they grab palm branches, and they also actually quote a festival hymn, a festival song. They go to the Sukkot hymnal, and they sing the Sukkot psalm as he comes into Jerusalem. So don't just give us the quote that they quote, but give us some context there out of Psalm 118. Um, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Lord, save us is that Hosanna part. Hoshanaz, the phrase there, Hoshana. And this psalm, this psalm is written about the day that they had the grand opening of the temple. And if we know the story of that temple and the grand opening of the temple, they, they opened the temple and associated it with the celebration of Sukkot. So Sukkot and the temple grand opening went together. And so there was this psalm that they wrote about the opening of the temple, the, the stone the builders have rejected have become the capstone. There's this wonderful midrash about how Solomon was building his temple. And, and uh, he had this stone. It was really oddly shaped, and it was super weird, and it wasn't numbered, and they had no idea what to do with it. So they just kind of like tossed it into the valley, into the ravine, into the garbage dump. And then come to find out as the building progressed that it was the one stone they needed to complete the building. And so that was the midrash surrounding that phrase that the stone, the builders, that they had tossed it aside. They didn't think it was the right stone. They didn't think it was a stone at all. 
only to find out it was the stone that they needed. The stone the builders have rejected to become the capstone. We finally have opened the temple. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Go ahead. Uh, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. All right. So here's this grand opening of the temple. It's it's Sukkot time. They've They've... They've put the two together. They're celebrating Sukkot. And so the grand opening psalm also has all this language about celebrating Sukkot, waving your palm fronds. So this became that image, that symbol for the Zealot Revolution, because of one of the many prophetic images that they love to cling to. And there is Zechariah 14, which is the end of Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah has this huge apocalyptic prophecy that we talked about in session two, and it ends, it culminates in this vision that he has about the temple and this festival of Sukkot. So let's hear the last closing chapter of Zechariah 14. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. 
the Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Getting a little repetitive there, Marty. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Festival of tabernacles, pretty big deal here. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Okay, so this is that prophetic culmination that like that zealot war cry can envision. The day where you're suffering and there's horrible ab- uh, abuse and oppression, but God fights for you and he delivers you. And, and then eventually, after all of this warring and all of this fighting is done, eventually there are even survivors. Whoever makes it through this war, whoever makes it through God defending his people and doesn't want to come and attack his people anymore, well, they all stream up, all of them, not just the Jewish nation, but all these nations that no longer want to attack Judah and Israel. They all stream up to the temple to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. And if they don't want to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, well, they won't have the rain because that's what Sukkot asked for. It was the, you shake the palm fronds, you say, Hoshana, God save us. Hoshana, grant us success. Give us the rain. Give us success in our agricultural pursuits. God, take care of us. And Essentially, you have this prophetic vision of all the nations streaming. And so when they think of the restoration of all things, when they think of the destruction of the Romans, when they think of God bringing the age to come, they think of the celebration of Sukkot and they see Jesus coming and they grab their palm fronds and they start singing Sukkot hymns because they see their king that they think is coming. And and, and then Jesus appears to play right into their idea. Go ahead and give. Now, this is different in John than it is the other Gospels, but give us the next couple of verses there, Brent. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And which prophecy is he alluding to by that action? Zechariah 9. Zechariah. So you're thinking like, good gravy. No wonder they think this. And Jesus plays right into their hand and 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 kind of lives out, kind of engages in his own guerrilla theater of... Zechariah. And you're thinking, well, of course. And of course they thought, oh yeah, yeah, he is. He's quoting Zechariah. He's quoting the great prophetic vision. In other gospels, Jesus goes and he cries up on the hill. He doesn't do that in John. Instead, we're told, what's the next verse? Give us the next verse or two. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. All right. So I think, because that that's odd, that Any Jew that knows their Bible, any Jew that is grabbing palm fronds, thinking about Sukkot and the prophecy of Zechariah, it's not that they don't understand that him jumping on a donkey had to do with Zechariah. That's not what the disciples don't understand. I think what John is saying is the disciples don't understand what Jesus was actually hinting at. They saw it through that same political revolution lens, and what they missed is all the references that sit around around that reference. So um, I got some passages. Uh, actually, I, I have to thank, I was really hard on the Jewish Annotated New Testament last episode. So today, I'm going to be nice to the Jewish Annotated New Testament and say I actually found this in their footnotes, and I thought, what an interesting callback 
they went to Zephaniah um, 3, uh, verse 14, and the handful that follow that. So give us Zephaniah 3, Brent. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Okay, so this is not just Zechariah 14. There are so many prophetic images you cling to about God restoring you, God coming, your king coming to you, Jerusalem, restoring you, restoring your appointed festivals. Think about Sukkot. Like, I, I love the the that Jewish annotated New Testament made that connection. They also pointed out Zechariah 12, which I found to be a really interesting reference. So it's kind of a longer passage, but give us Zechariah 12, Brent. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Uh, which is funny. <laughs> uh, not, not, not that serious of a thing yet. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot and a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set up to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So now we get a little bit more. It's definitely escalated at this point. A little bit more than a back injury. Yeah, here we go. They, they were injuring themselves. Now God is destroying the enemies. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadan Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, 
the clan of Shimei and their wives and all the rest of the clans and their wives. So you have this image again of God going out to fight for his people, and yet they end up on that day, their reaction is mourning, mourning this one they have pierced. And so easy, I know, in our Christian mind to see Jesus pierced on the cross. But think about what Zachariah's main point was as he, like there is this, they have tossed God and his prophets aside. They have kind of um, just, uh, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, abandoned his way. They, and there's this sense of, but it's, make no mistake about it, it's God who's doing the rescuing. It's God who's restoring. And it's it's his people that are, he pours out a spirit of, what was it, Brent? Grace and what was the spirit he poured out on them? Um, peace? Grace truth? and supplication? Oh, supplication. Where was that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, it was weird that they used supplication. I feel like that's not a word that the NIV normally uses. Grace and supplication, yeah. Grace and supplication. And now let's go to the passage that Jesus is actually referencing with his action, which is Zechariah 9, obviously the one that John quotes, but give us the verses that follow. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, which that's interesting, Ephraim, because that's where Jesus was right before he came here. Oh, yeah. Juicy. Very interesting. Ramez City. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and will make you like a warrior's sword. All right. So here's this passage. And I think that's what John is getting at when he says the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They saw the end of Zechariah. They saw the promise of Zephaniah 3. They saw the rejoice, oh, greatly, here comes your king of Zechariah 9. What they missed was the, but I'm going to take away your war horse and the battle bow. I'm going to take away the chariot. They missed the, they saw the rescue, but missed the mourning and the grief and the the abandoning of God's way and the piercing. That's what they that's what they missed. That's what I believe John is getting at when he says they don't understand. They obviously get the allusion to Zechariah. There's no way they missed that. What they miss is the the meaning of that allusion, as does everyone else standing there, which we talked about in the previous teaching on the triumphal entry. But let's get back to John and look at, uh, let's spend the rest of our time finishing out this John passage. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, Brent, that you have so graciously and compassionately corrected me in the last episode, and I realized that the first time that was said, it was uttered by the Sadducees, the chief priests in the Sanhedrin. Do you remember in the last episode, it was a Sanhedrin that said, this is getting us nowhere. Right. And now it's the Pharisees that are saying, this is getting us nowhere. And now you have the two different groups 
both essentially saying the same thing. We can't get anywhere with this Jesus character. This is spinning out of control no matter which worldview. It doesn't work for either the corrupt religious leadership nor for the self-righteous religious leadership. Neither one of them are finding a home in this thing that Jesus is bringing. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Which I love that, because Philip just doesn't just go to Jesus. A, there's something about Philip that draws the Greeks to him, which I love in Philip's larger story. We may or may not talk about that by the time we're done with John. But you have this Philip narrative that you're following through John. There's something about Philip that the Greeks feel comfortable coming to him and saying, we want to see Jesus. Philip, for whatever reason, is like, I don't know, can we bring the Greeks to Jesus? I I wonder if it's Passover week these unclean Greeks, like, I don't know what the backstory is, but he goes to Andrew and they decide together, like, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go bring this to Jesus. Go ahead. And it does list Andrew first in that instance. So, oh, sure. Philip goes to Andrew, but then Andrew says, let's go together and take this to Jesus. Yeah. I don't know if it's the same as that Hebrew expression that we talked about in session one or not, but sure. Absolutely. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. All right, so Jesus... Now, his language has been growing. I think we've been pointing this out in past episodes. It's my hour has, like, all the way back in John 2, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. My hour is not here. This isn't the right hour. John 7, go up to the festival. My hour hasn't come. And then in the last couple chapters, I think we've noted, Brent, his language is starting to shift. The hour is almost here. The hour is getting closer. And now the hour has come. And so you can feel this tone and this language shift. You pointed out in the last episode that we have these two different books, the books of signs, and then the book of hours or the book of glory. We'll look at that in the next episode. But you can feel this, you can absolutely feel this shift. And Jesus is working towards this closing of the book of signs by talking about his death. This Again, right on the heels of the triumphal entry, this ultimately leads, this doesn't lead to the kind of triumph you think. This doesn't lead to the kind of triumph you want. The triumph that I'm talking about is the triumph of a kernel of wheat falling to the ground and dying so that it can produce even more. That's where this story is headed. Do you want to know what happens to the, the whole book of signs is about realizing who I am, understanding my identity. And now you have to deal with, if you accept that identity, we, we now have to wrestle with what do we do with what we see in this Christ character. So that's what the tone is changing, and Jesus very directly says, you know where this ends? This ends with death. This doesn't end with the kind of victory you long for. This ends with the kind of upside-down, counterintuitive kingdom victory that's going to turn this whole thing on its head. So my question is, what does this response have anything to do with the Greeks? Like, is he just ignoring—I mean, they they don't have a specific request. They just say they want to see him, and presumably that means they want to talk to him because uh, they they could see him just walking around, but they, they want to actually like see him as in go up to him and at least, you know, share some greetings or something. And Philip and Andrew go tell him about this. And then he, 
And then he like turns around and responds in this pretty weird way <laughs> that doesn't seem to have anything to do with that. Yeah, that's a really good question. My thought is that the ending of the Book of Signs is going to be very, very similar to the ending of the Book of Hours or the Book of Glory. So if you could remember to ask me that question again at the very last chapter of John, I think it's pretty... It could be there could be an absolute connection there. Um, well, our listeners can go on the little journey. How does the book of John end, Brent? Uh, the restoration of Peter. Okay, and they catch a bunch of fish, right? Yeah. How many fish? One fifty-three. Is that where that weird number? One fifty-three, and we've talked about that number before, being the number the gematria association in rabbinical first-century Judaism with the number of the Gentiles. And so if you're looking at the book of signs, how many signs were there in the book of signs, Brent? Lazarus was number... He would have been seven. Seven or six, depending on how you want to count them, depending on if you put the walking of the water as a miracle and a sign or not. But nevertheless, let's say let's say number six or number seven, doesn't matter. But that means Jesus's resurrection would be either number seven or number eight, and the first sign of a new creation, you might say, because you have seven signs, right? Seven makes you think of what story? I just kind of gave it away. Creation, yeah. Creation. Now, all of a sudden, you have Jesus rising, and you have the story of a woman, not to jump ahead, but Mary is going to be in the garden. So you have Mary in a garden. When was the last time you had a woman in a garden with a gardener? Uh-huh. Creation, yes. Creation story. So now, all of a sudden, we have a woman in a garden. You have a new creation, and the first sign, the first miraculous sign of a new creation is the miraculous catch, which seems to insinuate this new world that Jesus has ushered in, this new creation, is a creation where all the Gentiles are being gathered in. So I find it interesting that the book of signs ends with a bunch of Greeks coming and say, we want to see Jesus, and Jesus saying, aha, my hour has come. I I don't know if that's, I mean, I'm doing that completely on the fly as you ask me that question. I have never wrestled with Jesus's response as a response to Philip and Andrew telling him about the Greeks, it's so it's so fascinating, but that's immediately where my mind went, was to the end of the Gospel of John and saying, yeah, yeah, that's where this whole thing heads. This whole thing heads to the Greeks coming and being included. So it makes sense to me that Jesus would say, ah, my hour has come because the Greeks are here. The Greeks want to be in. So let's go die. And the very first miracle you're going to see after my resurrection is the ingathering of all the Gentiles. Does that make sense? Yes. Wonderful. Okay, so Jesus moves on. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. All right. Now I have, again, a nice little footnote in my Jewish annotated New Testament that told me that that phrase, the voice of God that people heard, should be associated with the batkol, batkol, or daughter of the voice. I think we have a Wikipedia article we're going to link in the show notes. And it basically references this idea of a voice of God that is not like direct uh, prophecy. It's not it's not like God's speaking to a prophet or to a judge or to a biblical. It's a voice that everybody present can hear, even if they're not Jews, even if they're not believers. But usually it's associated with thunder. It's the same voice that got heard, according to rabbinic tradition, the same voice that was heard at Sinai, because we're told at Sinai there was the sound of what, Brent? Sound of thunder. The sound of thunder. And everybody heard the voice of God, and they were terrified, and they said, no, 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 Moses, you go speak to God. And so it's that same idea that that 
they hear this voice, it sounds like thunder, and you're hearing, when John says that as a, as a Jewish listener and reader, you're hearing him reference, it's that voice, it's Sinai, it's, it's that same image. It's not just like this weird Star Wars-esque voice from heaven moment, like this is a callback, this has, this has legs to it, it talk, this, this idea isn't just a random abstract. This is something that goes back in the story of God. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. All right. So Jesus encourages them to, you know, this 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 idea of having to die, This it goes against everything they understand, it, just like the triumphal entry. This isn't the triumph that they think they're going to have. This isn't the ending that they think the story is going to... They they know about the second Moses. They know what the Torah tells them. They, they know, obviously, this can't end in death. This has to end in life. And Jesus says, hey, hang on to this moment. Hang on to this opportunity while you have it, because the hour is... And again, the tone of John, the conversation in John is that the hour has finally arrived and something is about ready to happen. Something's going to be glorified so that this whole movement of God and what God is going to do in the world can move forward. So it's not the ending they're expecting, but it will be the ending that ends up being the new beginning, to be poetic about that. It's not the ending they think is coming, but it is the ending that will become a new beginning. So, whew, I feel like that was kind of a mess today, but hopefully there's something good in there for us to wrestle with. Lots of text we read, but I don't know. Brent, what do you think? Well, and speaking of text, there's that one line there. Uh, the crowd says, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, um, which it apparently does not say in Torah um, or really very clearly anywhere else. Um, but the the best guess, according to the NET footnotes, is that uh, Psalm 89 is being referenced. Um but other people have suggested Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 37, Daniel 7. Uh, so there's um, none of which are in Torah. Um, so there's lots of possibilities there. But Yeah, yeah. And the Daniel 7, because you just got done talking about Son of Man. So the Daniel 7 reference could be potentially at play. Um, it is interesting they would call it. You, you could and would call everything law in a general sense. I'm also still captivated by the Greeks that are there that want to come see Jesus. I'm even curious what who's even talking, because I don't think the passage there specified it was Jews that said that. So is it the Greeks that came looking for are, are they the ones saying, well, we know what the law says? Right, yeah. And I don't know. Maybe it maybe they maybe they have an understanding of what the it's such a you really threw me for a beautiful curveball there when you pointed out the <laughs> The Greek, which I've always loved that verse about the Greeks wanting to see Jesus, but I've never actually looked at Jesus' response in relationship to that verse. It's just such a good question. Uh, many questions, many things to wrestle with. Always. 
Yep. Okay. Well, that does it for this episode. Uh, next week, we close out the Book of Signs, right? I believe so. And I, I'm no expert on the whole idea of the Book of Signs and the Book of Hours, Book of Glory, like where the break is. Was it at the beginning of... Have we already made the transition? I believe chapter 13 is where the break is, but I could be wrong about that. So we're talking about these in very loose, generic terms, but we're definitely in the midst of that transition right here. We are, if we haven't already made the turn, we are making the turn in the next episode for sure. Yeah. And the, um, I, I think this is all, the rest of chapter 12 is all happening in the same spot, but then uh, the beginning of chapter 13 is like the, the day of the Passover feast. So we have, yes, we have another like jump of, because we were at five days before Passover and then the feast would be the day before, right? Yeah. And you, yeah. Well, and then there's the whole timeline, especially as John confuses the timeline, but, um, as far as what it feels like on the surface, I don't think he confuses it at all, but it kind of gets a little weird when people try to put the Passover details together. Yeah. But I do feel like the language there at the end of John 13 is definitely, I feel like you feel a shift. Like John's saying, we're starting a new book. That is now done, and now Jesus goes to, and we'll talk about that in two episodes, but I feel like people can look ahead and read that. See if you think the language has a very definite shift at the beginning of John 13. Uh, an exercise to to hold you over until the next episode, I suppose. There you go. Beautiful. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EABCB, and you can find more details about the show at BeamontDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Beamont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.